Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Shauna is a professor, clinical psychologist, and internationally recognized speaker in mindfulness and self-compassion. She spent two decades studying the benefits of mindfulness and compassion, publishing over 150 papers and three critically acclaimed books. Her TEDx talk, What You Practice Grows Stronger, has been viewed over one million times. Her most recent book, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy, was released in January of 2020 from Sounds True. Welcome to the Meta Hour. Thank you, Sharon. It's a delight to have you here. Mm, it's an honor to be here. That's a very long subtitle. It is. <laughs> it's, but uh, they say subtitles are meant to really reveal what's in the book. And there you are. Mindfulness and self-compassion practices to rewire your brain for calm, clarity, and joy. When you have a title like Good Morning, I Love You, you need a little bit of unpacking. <laughs> <laughs> so I always like to start by having somebody describe how you first found mindfulness practice, why it became important to you. And how it shaped your life and your work. Hmm. So when I was 17, I had spinal fusion surgery. So I had a metal rod put in my spine, and it was quite unexpected. So I went from this healthy, active teenager to lying in a hospital bed, unable to walk. Did you have an accident or something? I had scoliosis, but it was it was monitored since I was 12. And so I actually had formed this very beautiful relationship with my orthopedic surgeon. And I saw him every six months and he said, you're doing great. And when I was 17, I went in for my routine checkup and he said my spine was about to puncture my lungs and that we need to operate immediately. And it was one of those moments in life where everything comes crashing down. And luckily at the time, um, my father, who studied mindfulness for many, many years, introduced me to it. And it was one of those moments where I actually felt hope again, you know, because I was so locked into the physical pain, the emotional pain, and this despair, like, this is going to be the rest of my life. And mindfulness really gave me a path forward. And um, so some years later, I went to Thailand and Nepal to study and spent some time in the monasteries there. I was there for about three months. And when I came back, I decided to get my PhD and scientifically study what I had been practicing for a few years. And that was 23 years ago. I think I published my very first paper then and have really, really dedicated my career to how do we bring these practices to everyone? How do we take the, the deepest essence of them and look at it through a scientific lens and offer it in a very simple, practical way? I'm really curious, like up until the age of 17, did you know what your father was doing and were you dismissive <laughs> of it or suspicious of it or what? It's such a great question. So he tried teaching me. I remember when I was five, he said, he sat me down. We tried to meditate and he said, 
Imagine that you're sitting under a busy highway and there's cars racing over your head. He said, these cars are your thoughts. What you want to do is notice the car, but don't climb in and drive away. So green car, red car, yellow car. And I, I vividly remember that. And then I don't remember ever talking about it again <laughs> until I was 17. But what was so beautiful is my father and I had a really challenging relationship in high school. And in fact, there was even a point where we weren't speaking and it was we were fighting all the time. And something in my surgery and in the way that he was really the one that kind of saved me in a sense mm-hmm. um, healed our relationship. And it's been so beautiful for these you know decades now sharing this practice with both he and my mother. In fact, I dedicated the book to both of them. That's so lovely. That's really nice. So you were a child meditator, but, but very briefly. I was a, well. <laughs> I was. A, I'm called a meditation baby because there's all these photos of me as a baby in my dad's lap while he's meditating, oh. and I would just sit there and you know. But I don't remember ever meditating as a child. <laughs> <laughs> just the one time. Just that one time. That's a great image. The cars are going by, mm-hmm. and you're just letting them. So the word mindfulness itself, of course, has become incredibly popular these days, and people use it in all kinds of different ways, in different contexts. And I'm wondering how you're defining it. Mm. So I agree. It's become so popular that it almost is meaningless at this point. And I think it's really important to be careful with the definition. So I actually spent, it's kind of embarrassing, years of my academic career developing a definition and model of mindfulness. I wrote a whole book on this model. And I I tell people that's how academics are. We have to write hundreds of pages to prove our point. But in a simple way, um, I define mindfulness as having three key elements. Intention, which is just knowing why am I paying attention? What's important? What do I value? Attention, present moment awareness. And then your attitude is this attitude of kindness and curiosity. And that's the part that I think is most often overlooked, that we... I know for myself, when I first started practicing, it was all about paying attention. And I was trying to focus my mind and I was fighting with my mind and judging myself when I couldn't do it. And I was with a monk in Thailand. And as I was sharing with him my struggles and why can't I do this, he looked at me and he said, you're not practicing mindfulness. You're practicing impatience, frustration, judgment. And then he said these five words. He said, what you practice grows stronger. What you practice grows stronger. We know this now with neuroplasticity, right? Mm -hmm. Our repeated thoughts, emotions, behaviors shape our brain. And he said, if you're meditating with judgment, you're growing judgment. And he helped me understand that how we pay attention, our attitude is key. And he said, he said, mindfulness is like these loving arms that welcome everything, even the messy, imperfect parts. I find that really fascinating because. My impression is that even in earlier scientific efforts to evaluate is someone being mindful or not, what people were keying into was, do you know what's happening? Mm -hmm. Do you know you're angry? Do you know there's sadness arising? Do you know there's joy? And I kept feeling, well, that's so incomplete Mm -hmm. because there are lots of ways we can know. We can know with rancor. We can know with bitterness. We can know with delight. We can know with interest. We can know with balance. And as I was always taught, you know, mindfulness meant a kind of balanced awareness that implied even if something was unwelcome, we would have an attitude of kindness because mm-hmm. that's what would be the balance. That's exactly. what the balance would look like. And I, I also see these days, you know, this sort of 
because uh, it's so complicated. There's the mindfulness movement, and then there's the backlash, and then there's the backlash against the backlash, and then it's just <laughs> like, you know, that people are struggling to try to convey just what you conveyed, that there's kindness there, there's interest there, mm-hmm. there's presence, but in a balanced way. You're not right. really judging what you're seeing. And so people are struggling to somehow convey that because the word mindfulness for some people sounds so cold and, and right. kind of clinical. And so they're saying, call it warm mindfulness, call it kindfulness, call it heartfulness. And and I, I frankly, am a little bit amused by all that because <laughs> it's just mindfulness. Right. That's what mindfulness actually is supposed to mean. And I think it's crucial to understand that because I think a lot of what has popularized the interest in mindfulness has been the sense that if you practice this, you're practicing a kind of keen attention, which is true, and you will experience your life more fully. You'll taste the tea when you're drinking the tea. But that's only part of the picture. It's not only inhabiting our lives, it's understanding ourselves. And we won't understand on a deeper level unless we have kindness and interest. Exactly. And I think that, for me, has been one of the most important things to study, both from a scientific lens and a clinical lens, is, you know, when I came back and started getting my PhD and became a clinical psychologist, I started working with a lot of different people. I worked at the Cancer Center with women with breast cancer. I worked with stressed-out college students, high-level CEOs. And what I was most struck by is everyone was talking about the same thing, this tremendous amount of self-judgment and shame. And as they were practicing the mindfulness, it was with that really kind of judgmental, harsh, critical attention. And so even if they were getting better at paying attention, it certainly wasn't healing their life. And so I started studying the impact of shame and What is fascinating is that when we shame and judge ourselves, it actually shuts down our capacity to learn. It shuts down, just like what you said, our capacity to understand, to have true insight. In in fact, when we're judging ourselves, it's like there's an attack on us and we go into fight or flight. All our resources are shuttled to survival pathways instead of learning pathways. And so I try to explain to people this attitude of kindness and curiosity. It's not just like a side note or something nice to have. It is actually an essential part of the practice, just like what you're saying. That's great. What is the IAA model? So the IAA model is the intention, attention, Attention, attitude attitude. model. And it's just to, to help people kind of have a deeper understanding of what mindfulness is, that we need all three of these elements. If I'm just paying attention, but I'm not doing it in a welcoming, kind way, I'm I'm kind of missing an essential part of mindfulness. If I don't even know why I'm paying attention, I don't know my intention, again, we're missing an essential piece. I think the intention really contextualized mindfulness for me, that you're not just sitting down, oh, okay, I guess I'm meditating. It's like, well, why am I doing this? May it be of benefit? May you know, may I be a more present mother? Or may this help heal our world? Whatever the intention is, I think there's a power in just setting it. Beautiful. I'm curious in terms of um, the science, because obviously that's not my background. You know, I come from a, a much more personal and practical place. Um, what do you think the science shows as the real benefits of mindfulness? And do you think it 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 can show the real benefits? Mm. It's a great question. 
I think science can capture a certain dimension of mindfulness, and I think it's really important to do that. And then, of course, there's the subtle impacts of this practice that we couldn't possibly measure. And yet what I found is that the science helps um, instill faith in Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's science has become our religion in some ways. And when I'm working with someone and they hear that mindfulness improves the immune system or it lengthens our telomeres or it helps integrate the right and left hemisphere or it, you know, is effective for depression or anxiety or insomnia, it really helps motivate them and allow them to have that sense of faith in the practice that, you know, the monks and nuns who originally practiced, they had. And I think that's a part of the practice is actually believing it's possible to um, to heal. And that's when I think for me, why I focus so much on neuroplasticity is because this discovery, I believe is one of the most important discoveries in the last 400 years of brain science, because it's so hopeful. What it says is that All of us have the capacity to change, no matter what's happened, no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter what our past. All of us have the power and the choice to re-architect our brain. And that, for me, is the most hopeful message science has to offer. It's funny because I am old enough so that, you know, when I went to school, we weren't taught that. Right. You know, in junior high school science or whatever, you know, when we were taught that when you get to be, I don't know, like somewhere in your 20s. It's all over. It's all over, <laughs> except downhill. You know, right. like if you have a traumatic accident or something terrible happens, your brain can degenerate, but it can't regenerate or it can't mm-hmm. grow in new and wonderful directions at all. And so when I first started hearing about neuroplasticity, it was a direct contradiction exactly. to everything I've been taught. Up until the 1990s, they taught the doctrine of the unchanging brain. That you could not change your brain. And it was, you know, and and we know that there's something called the happiness set point, which shows that people's baseline happiness level doesn't change throughout their life once they get to kind of young adulthood. And this is a really depressing message. You know, they found that when you win the lottery, you have this huge blip of happiness. One year later, you're back to your baseline. Even more surprising, you're in a terrible accident. You become paralyzed for life. You have a huge drop in happiness. But then one year later, you're back to your baseline level. And, you know, this is great news if you're born happy. It's like life knocks you down, you pop back up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you're not born happy, which is many of the people I work with, then no matter how big your wins or your successes, you're never going to change your baseline level of happiness. This is terrible news. And what neuroplasticity and the recent research has shown is that even though external changes, winning the lottery, doesn't change your happiness, internal changes can. You know, as Richie Davidson says, happiness can be trained because the very structure of our brain can be modified. And this is an incredibly hopeful message. And these practices of mindfulness and self-compassion have been shown to re-architect your brain. Maybe we should, uh, I'll have you define (laughs) self-compassion. Me? Yeah. You're the expert. Go for it. (laughs) So, I have learned a great deal from you and Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield and Kristen Neff. And I've been using Kristen's definition because for me as a scientist, it's very helpful to have it broken down into these three key elements. Mm -hmm. And so she talks about the first step is mindfulness. You have to know you're in pain in order to bring compassion to it. The second step is kindness, to really treat yourself as you would a dear friend. 
And then the third step is this common humanity, this recognition that you're not alone in your suffering, that we all suffer, that it's human to suffer. And that definition I find is very simple and easy for people to um, practice, to actually integrate into their daily life. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting as I was practicing originally, I was practicing the kindness part and I was imagining what a dear friend would say to me. Right. So imagining what someone I loved would say to me if I had yelled at my son and I was feeling really ashamed. And I noticed it didn't work at all because I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're just trying to be nice to me. And it actually took me imagining what I would say to a dear friend. And all of a sudden, the love and the compassion opened in my heart. And so I think that distinction is really interesting that we actually have to shift our consciousness and imagine how we would hold a dear friend and then to try to bring that back toward ourselves. I asked uh, at this point in the conversation, because you, you talked about Richie and you talked about training. Mm. And I would say that in, in you know my many years now of teaching loving kindness meditation, um, there are two controversies that are predominant. One is, can this be trained? Mm. You know, and, and I think often we think of love or compassion as almost like kind of gifts and you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you're out of luck or an immediate emotional eruption without any conditionality, without any background. Uh, whereas in Eastern psychology or the Buddhist psychology, definitely they believe it can be trained because qualities like loving kindness and compassion are, are felt to be emergent properties of how we pay attention. And we know attention can be trained. That's the whole point of meditation. But the other controversy um, is the idea that qualities like love or loving kindness and compassion are very weakening, mm. that they're stupid and that they're just kind of saccharine or sentimental. And really you're talking about something that not only is it powerful, but it may be the most powerful way to make a change. Mm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're bringing this up because whenever I bring up self-compassion, whether I'm teaching at the university or at a hospital or with clients, you kind of see people like roll their eyes or their eyes glaze over and they're, they kind of tune out a little bit like, yeah, yeah, but I actually want to change. So don't bring this up to me. I actually am in pain or I ha I've done something that I need to shift and this is going to make me weak or lose my edge or lose my motivation. And this is why I love the science. You look at the research, and what it shows is people who are higher in self-compassion, who have practiced self-compassion, they exercise more. They take care of themselves better. They actually are more apt to apologize when they've made a mistake. Their whole approach to failure is different. They view it as an opportunity for learning. So they have this grit and this resilience and this accountability. And so exactly what you said, instead of being weak, it's actually one of the most powerful forces we have for change. It's so interesting, um, especially as Kristen has defined it. I think it's very explicit. Mm -hmm. And that sense of isolation or uh, it's just me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to talk to you about shame because you said you really studied it. And I was flashing back to my early teaching career Um where the form we were teaching it was always intensive retreats. And mm -hmm. so people were getting very sensitive and, you know, aware of things that they had done or said that may not have been that helpful or, you know, really may have caused harm. But people would come and they'd say, like, they'd be so ashamed and mm -hmm. they'd say, 
I have to confess, I did something really bad yesterday. And you go, you kind of brace yourself, <laughs> like, okay, I'm here for you, whatever it was. And then, then they say, like, I used two tea bags. <laughs> and you think, I don't think that's that bad, but clearly you do, you know. I remember it. That's so funny that you're telling that. So I remember a retreat at Spirit Rock. I think it was the month-long retreat. And they had put out cookies. And I remember, and we hadn't really had cookies, you know, the whole month. And they put out cookies. And it said one only very clearly on the thing. And I sat there. I took one cookie. And then I was, like, waiting and waiting and waiting. It kind of seemed like everyone was gone. And so I went and I took another cookie. And I remember I'm eating my second cookie. And someone comes in who hadn't had one. And literally, like, I burst into tears. Oh. I remember, like, just just not being able to tolerate the the pain and the shame. And it's such a small example. But I think that happens to us all the time, this kind of tremendous sense of I've done something wrong. I'm the only one that's ever done something wrong. I'm not good enough. And it's really what I hear from my students, from my patients, is this tremendous amount of shame that we all carry. And I think that's why the piece of common humanity is so important, is to recognize, oh, other people make mistakes. Other people get divorced. Other people have children who are sick or, you know, difficulty with their parents. And we start to recognize our common humanity and our common suffering. Mm -hmm. And then the only thing that makes sense is kindness, kindness toward each other, kindness toward ourselves. I think it's also helpful, you know, sometimes people... Um, think that universality of suffering must mean we're all suffering in the same way or to the same degree, and it doesn't because mm -mm. clearly that's not true. But there is a kind of vulnerability in life which we all share, which we need to honor. Everyone is making mistakes. Everyone's needing to pick up and start over. Everyone, mm. you know, yeah. faces loss or something like that. And I think when we recognize that we're all wanting to feel safe and loved. We're all wanting to have shelter and food. We all want these basic things. We want to feel we're connected and that we belong. Then we start to treat each other differently. You know, one of the practices that I think is so important is to really behold someone and see them as a young child and see their hopes and their dreams and then see them through the lens of compassion and the losses and the pain. And then really see their goodness and wish the best for them. And as we do these practices, we start to recognize we're not so different, right? Maya Angelou has that beautiful quote. She says, my friends, we're more alike than we are unalike. Mm. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't recognize and respect the differences. And especially in this climate, in this culture, it's so important to celebrate and highlight differences, but not at the expense of forgetting our common humanity. And I think it's also really important to highlight that having compassion for someone else doesn't mean that uh, you may not, that you're just going to give in. You know, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're going to be passive and, and cease making efforts to maybe ensure that person can't harm, to the best of your ability, ensure that person can't harm exactly. someone it, else or you again. Yeah. Compassion is not passive resignation. And self-compassion does not mean you let yourself off the hook. It's really coming back to the mindfulness. It's about seeing clearly. And we have to pay attention with kindness in order to see clearly. Otherwise, I think it's just too painful. When we've made a mistake or we've done something wrong, it's, it's so painful to actually acknowledge and see it that we need to know we're not going to just beat ourselves up when we actually acknowledge it. 
And I think the compassion really allows for that clear seeing and that deep insight so we can change. Do you um, teach gratitude reflections as well? I do. I So part of the book is certainly about meeting suffering and self-compassion and mindfulness, but part of the book is using mindfulness to really deepen and enhance our joy. And so there's a whole chapter about taking in the good and how do we kind of hardwire happiness and how do we encode our beautiful experiences in our long-term memory. And one of the seven practices in that chapter is gratitude practice, which I enjoy every single day. I think it's such an important, such an important practice to incline the mind toward what you're grateful for, what you appreciate. And we actually do it at dinner every evening that we have to go around the table and say our our one good thing. And sometimes the kids roll their eyes, but um, it's a wonderful way to just plant that seed of gratitude. That's wonderful. Once somebody came to me in a retreat and she said something like, I've decided to look for one thing a month I can be grateful for. And I said, I don't think that's enough, you know? Like, try one a day. And yesterday on Twitter, um, I read this quote from David DeSteno. I didn't actually read the article, you know, but um, uh, he must have done some research or, or was promoting some research about gratitude. And it said something like, most people think that if you're grateful, you're going to, and this is a paraphrase, but he said it better than this, but something like most people think that, or conventionally it's thought that if you're grateful, you'll be just like satisfied with crumbs, you know, you'll be complacent. Mm. And he said, but really the, the research is showing that if you practice gratitude, uh, you have higher expectations of what life can deliver. Absolutely. I think you have you have more hope and optimism. I mean, even if you want to try right now and people listening, if you just take a moment and think about someone that you're grateful for, someone who's supported you or done something kind, a dear friend. or And what I notice is the f- first person that comes to mind, right, I often think of my grandfather. All of a sudden, my whole face lights up. I can feel the smile kind of move up into my eyes, and I feel this energy and this warmth. And so what you notice is that gratitude actually motivates you. It it fills you with energy. It nourishes you. Far from making you complacent, it allows you to really, I, I think, um, engage with life more fully and feel like you have support. That's great. I'm very curious. How did you name the book Good Morning, I Love You? <laughs> it definitely was a um, was a conversation with my publishing house and many others because Everyone said, you're a scientist, and if you name it Good Morning, I Love You, it's not going to um, show your scientific background clearly. And yet the reason I chose to name it that is this practice was the most powerful practice I've experienced, and it shifted something in me that nothing else did. And so it, it came about kind of organically. I was going through a very difficult divorce many years ago. And I felt this tremendous amount of shame and self-judgment. You know, I'm a therapist. I'm a meditator. Why couldn't I make this work? And especially because we had a young son. And at the time, um, one of my teachers saw how much I was judging myself and said, I think you should start practicing compassion practice, loving kindness practice. And she said, how about just saying, I love you, Shauna, every day? And I was like, no way. (laughs) It just sounded so contrived and inauthentic. 
And she saw my hesitation and she said, how about just saying good morning, Shauna? When you wake up, she said, try putting your hand on your heart. It releases oxytocin. It's good for you. She knew the science would win me over. And just saying good morning, Shauna. And so the next day I woke up, took a breath, hand on heart, good morning, Shauna. And it was kind of nice, right? Instead of that avalanche of shame and self-judgment and fear, I just greeted myself with kindness. And I kept practicing every day. And I started noticing real shifts, you know, a little less harshness, a little more kindness throughout my day. And a few months later, it was my birthday. And I was right in the middle of the divorce. And I wasn't with my son or my husband. It was my first birthday alone. And I woke up in the morning and I put my hand on my heart. And I had this image of my grandmother and my grandparents were very, very important in my life. And all of a sudden, before I knew it, I said, good morning. I love you, Shauna. Happy birthday. And it was as if the dam around my heart burst and this love came pouring in. My grandmother's love, my mother's love, my own self-love. And something shifted that day. And and it's not like every day since then has been this bubble of self-love and I've never felt shame again, but I've continued to practice every single day. And I wake up every morning, put my hand on my heart and say, good morning, I love you. And this pathway of kindness and compassion, it's growing stronger. Mm-hmm. And the way it's rippled out into the world has been astounding. You know, I started practicing for my son, especially when he was at his dad's house and I was missing him. And I would wake up and say, good morning. I love you, Jackson, and feel connected to him. And when my grandparents died, I would start saying, good morning. I love you to them. And just feeling this sense of loving kindness kind of permeating my being just as the way I woke up. Um, And so I felt like that was the practice I most wanted to share. And it became the title of the book. That's beautiful. And in the book, Good Morning, I Love You, um, you also talk about the 5% principle. Can you explain what that is? Yes. That, for me, is also revolutionary. So the 5% principle is this understanding that you don't have to do everything perfectly. You can just do 5% more gratitude or 5% more kindness toward yourself or even just softening the body 5% more. Whenever I practice meditation, I always begin by just just softening 5%. I don't have to be perfectly relaxed. I don't have to do this perfectly. Because I think we have this myth of perfection and that it really paralyzes us, that people don't start because they feel like they have to do it perfectly. And when I say just do 5%, people tend to start. And then there's this kind of this way where it takes the pressure off and we lighten up. And what the research shows is that the way that we make changes is through small increments that you're not supposed to do it all at once. If you look at evolution, that's not how evolution occurs. And in fact, perfection is the antithesis of evolution. We're supposed to be growing and evolving and learning and making mistakes and iterating. You know, I I think Ben Franklin said, I I haven't failed. I've just learned a thousand ways that don't work. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I love that, is to really shift our relationship to change and to see it as a process. So I'm obviously somewhat outside the scientific community, um, but it seems to me that earliest meditation studies, which were either about self-reporting, uh, were really being done largely by neuroscientists. So it was a lot about changes in the brain. And 
seems to me there's a greater emphasis on um, genetic expression and other means of assessing mm. scientifically whether something is having an effect or not. Is that so? Or? I think that's true in one sense. That's certainly what's popular. But I think there's also attention to kind of our, you know, intersubjective experience, which I think is incredibly valuable, mm -hmm. and to making sure that we look at both novice meditators and what happens after an eight-week program, but also looking at long-term meditators and looking not only at changes in their brain, but really their subjective experience of life. Because I think this also informs us of the, the depths that we're trying to teach. And uh, what I love doing in my research, and I learned this from Roger Walsh, who's been a wonderful mentor and dear friend in my life for many years, since I was born, actually. And what he taught us is that we should always, as scientists, be either practicing or working with someone with a deep practice so that we actually know the questions to ask, so that we actually have an understanding from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's essential for science to really have an impact in bringing these practices in a meaningful way to people. And it also seems to me, well, I think this, this must be true, um, that there's more and more research being done on compassion and loving kindness and not, strictly speaking, only mindfulness. Absolutely, as, as it should be. And, you know, Barb Fredrickson has been doing some wonderful research, as you well know, and really bringing self-compassion and especially loving kindness into the field in an empirical way and showing the power of these practices. I think we've only scratched the surface in what we've done in meditation research. And even with its popularity, we still, our, our research is so clunky. We, mm -hmm. we, it's so, um, there's so much more rigor and nuance that needs to be applied. And it's really about asking the right questions. And that's why I truly believe that there has to be this marriage between the practitioners and the scientists, or even better, the scientists practice and the practitioners do something, you know, that, that we really have to start to ask the questions from the inside and from the depths of practice. That's very interesting because, of course, um, being as old as I am, <laughs> there's, you know, I can remember the time when if somebody, um, well, I was teaching once somewhere and the last question was from a therapist and, and she said, there's so much pressure to try to bring mindfulness into my clinical practice. And, and she said, I don't feel really qualified. Mm. To teach it. And I, I was like practically rolling on the floor. I said, there's pressure to bring <laughs> mindfulness into your therapy practice. And then the next day I happened to be at a meeting and there were two psychiatrists there. So I brought up the story and, and one of them said, oh, I remember when I had to hide that. It's so interesting. You know, if I was a practitioner, it was like not to be disclosed. And if you were looking for a job in the academy as a professor, you couldn't be a <laughs> practitioner because you will have lost academic detachment. And so Absolutely. I, I mean, would imagine there's a kind of suspicion also of um, contemplative neuroscientists and people like that. I think it's becoming less and less. I mean, when I started my PhD, it was in 1998, um, somewhere around there. And... I remember mindfulness was very, very new, and people really said to me, you have such a promising academic career. Don't blow it on this stuff. You know, it's so out there. And yet for me, it was 
the only reason I was even getting a PhD was so I could study mindfulness. That was the point. I never planned on being a professor or having a career. I really Mm -hmm. just wanted to understand it. And now we have this kind of mindful revolution where, just like you said, it's, it's one of the most popular things in psychology, that you're getting pressured to teach it even when you don't feel ready. And what I tell my students, because I train therapists, is for me, the most important thing is not whether or not they teach mindfulness. It's that they practice themselves, that this presence, this kindness, this openness, that's something that they want to practice moment by moment as they're doing therapy. Well, you know, because of my background, I went to India when I was 18. And um because it's been such a strong part of my life, I I almost don't see how people can actualize their deepest values without that training, because I've had that, I've had access to that training. And so it's helped me mm-hmm. kind of make real the things I really care about. And I have a friend who's British. He grew up in the Church of England and he said that when he was even very young, like maybe nine years old, he'd just be thrilled every time he heard somebody say, love thy neighbor as thyself. And But then he started asking questions, and his big question was, well, how? Mm. We actually don't like our neighbor all that much, <laughs> you know, or maybe we don't like ourselves all that much. So how? Mm. How do I make it real and face the anger or the disgruntlement or the fear that I actually do feel? Right. Um, and so... You know, for me, meditation practice has been the how, how to. That is the power of these practices is they actually teach the how. So in our graduate program, we always tell our students, you need to be empathic. But we never tell them how. And what I find is these practices, in fact, a few of my research studies focused on how training and mindfulness and compassion increase empathy levels in therapists, increase empathy levels in physicians. And what I think is so powerful about these practices is they actually provide us step-by-step instructions for how to make these changes in our lives. And that was really the intention of the book was to fill it full of practices that people can integrate in their life that science has shown can change it. So is that the um, most important thing you'd like readers of the book to take (laughs) away is, is the sense of how? The sense that change is possible and that this is a path forward, that so many people feel like they're beyond reach. And as I mentioned before, that it's too late to change. And so I think one of the most important messages of this book is that it's never too late and that all of us have the capacity to grow these resources through practice. I want to just go back for a moment to something you just said when you talked about empathy, Um, because I find at this this stage in my life, I seem to be working a lot with caregivers, either Mm people who are in some professional role so that they're taking care of others or personally their parent or their child or something like that. And and it seems that um, a lot of people in that position uh, have a lot of empathy, actually. Mm. But there's sometimes something else missing so that they're out of balance and they're burning out. Yes. It's so important. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. So... There's There's been some new research from Tanya Singer's lab, and it's really interesting. What they're showing is that when we feel empathy, the pain centers of the brain light up. So when we see someone suffering, it makes sense. Our mirror neurons allow us to feel, to empathize. So you see someone stub their toe, and you're like, ooh, ouch. What happens, though, is when that continues, it can lead to burnout. 
and that what we actually need to do is use empathy as a gateway to compassion. Because what they found in the laboratory is that when we feel compassion, the reward centers light up, the positive centers light up, because we're feeling our care for the person and our desire to help. And so the key when you're working with caregivers, which I work with a lot, is to help them transition out of the pain they're feeling and the, the sadness and the, the, the kind of wretchedness of seeing someone else in pain to feeling their love for that person, to feeling their desire to care. And then I tell my students this, actually, I tell them, this is your protective suit, is it's tough out there and you're going to see a lot of pain and you're going to feel it. That's what drew you to this profession. This is what's going to protect you is compassion. It's not numbing out that, you know, how they teach you. It's not pulling back. It's going in and through. That's really interesting because um, I'm told that if you, you know, if you Google a certain term, um, Google will make suggestions believing that you're likely searching for this association because so many before you have searched for that particular association. So if you type in compassion, fatigue will come up very quickly. And that is a misnomer. It should be called empathy fatigue, not compassion fatigue. In fact, I'm working on a paper right now because I really want to clarify this for the field because I think especially for therapists and caregivers, this is a really important distinction and it will help protect them to learn that empathy, it's not bad, but it's a gateway. It's a stepping stone to compassion. Yeah, I think it's really, I, I read somewhere um, and you would know, you know clearly much better than I, that uh, people tend to enter medical school with a certain level of compassion and they leave with a much less level of compassion. This, so this was my master's thesis back in, this was my very first publication, is I read that exact study. This was ages ago. <laughs> and what, what they showed is that you enter medical school with this kind of altruistic, empathic, compassionate, want to save the world, and you leave feeling very disheartened, despairing, and kind of bitter and numb. That, that's not what we want to train in our healers. And so the very first study I did was teaching mindfulness to medical students to see if we could increase their compassion and their empathy. And we did. Okay. <laughs> when was that study done? That study was published in 1998. Wow, the Journal fabulous. of Behavioral Medicine, my very first study. Wow, how great. 22 years. <laughs> I asked the right person the right question. <laughs> <You did>. Wow. Because, <laughs> I mean, to, you know, to some extent, I would only imagine that happens not only because of experience of so much suffering, but because you're trained, as you put it, to step back, to, exactly. to disconnect in some way. They're practicing behaviors that are not conducive to healing. Mm -hmm. They're trained in how to have kind of this this capacity to detach. That that actually requires an, a tremendous amount of energy and doesn't protect you. It just costs you energy and dehumanizes the human being that you were called to to help. Well, thank you. I mean this this particular discussion is very close to my heart as well as, you know, everything else we've talked about because um it's so often the case that people are championing empathy training, which is very important. It is a, a huge stepping stone. But I keep thinking of those people 
that yeah. I know, you know, who are international humanitarian aid workers, who are hospice nurses, who are right. parents. They already have empathy. They don't yeah. need to be trained in empathy. They were drawn to this because of their incredibly tender, good hearts. Yeah. What we need to teach them is how to use skillful means to use that empathy and shift it into compassion yeah. so that they're empowered and they're protected. Yeah. Thank you. This is really beautiful. Um, so we're coming toward the end of our time. I wonder if you could lead us in some kind of guided practice. Mm, I would love to. So maybe just take a moment and settle into wherever you're sitting. If you're driving, please keep your eyes open and do not practice. And just take a moment to arrive your attention in your body, to just let it settle into the body. Maybe just wiggling your toes to help anchor your attention. Feel your feet and both legs. Feel your seat, your hips, your buttocks. Feel your spine straight and upright, shoulders relaxed. And just sensing both arms, hands, your belly, your chest. Feeling your face and softening your jaw, softening your eyes and your forehead. And all we're doing is just arriving our attention in the body. And then I like to let a gentle smile just rest on my mouth, just as a way to remind myself to bring this attitude of kindness to my attention. You can even sometimes feel this smile kind of crinkle up into the eyes just as a way to welcome whatever's here. Feeling the breath and just experiencing it as it flows in and out of the body, oxygenating the body with each in-breath, releasing with each out-breath. And I love just feeling how the breath is taking care of me, that I don't really have to control it or think about it. It just knows what to do. And then maybe if it feels comfortable, just placing your hand on your heart and see if you can feel your heartbeat. The heart is sending oxygen and nutrients to every cell in our body right now. And again, I just love feeling how the heart is taking care of me. Both the breath and the heart know exactly what's needed to nourish you. So taking a moment just to receive that nourishment. And see if you can soften the body 5% more. Bring 5% more kindness and curiosity to whatever's here. And as you're ready, you can put your hand back in your lap and just resting with the whole body. And I want to invite you to reflect on one gold nugget is what I call them. One thing that you've heard in this conversation or one insight you had, one thing that you want to take with you. What we find in the research is that we tend to remember the peak and the end of an experience. And so right here, as we're drawing to a close, to reflect on one thing you want to take with you and to hold it in your 
mind to encode it in your long-term memory. And it could be something simple, what you practice grows stronger, or empathy is a gateway to compassion. Or maybe just to treat yourself as you would a dear friend, to be your own ally. As you're ready, taking another breath in and out. And you can let some light come back in through your eyes. Maybe even just stretching your arms above your head. I don't have any science behind the arm stretching, but it always feels really good. <laughs> good. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me to speak today. If you'd like to learn more about Shauna's work, you can check out her website at www.drshaunashapiro, that's D-R-S-H-A-U-N-A-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. Her book, Good Morning, I Love You, is available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.